Good day, everyone. In this episode of The Gadfly, I want to lay out some of the most common meanings of the word freedom, a word that since ancient times has been as much used as misused, and that is probably the most blood-stained word in our vocabulary. Like so many others, I have a reflex affection for this word, even the occasional surge of passion. Nevertheless, whenever asked to explain what it means, I pause. Most people today will say, hey, it means doing whatever you want, to which they reflexively will add, as long as you don't hurt someone else. This common response speaks of an age, our own, that sees self-expression and personal satisfaction as the key to freedom and authenticity. But that has not always been the case. Throughout history, various cultures and civilizations have had surprisingly different concepts of freedom. And even within our own tradition, the meaning has changed a lot. The Greek sense of freedom differed from the Roman, though for both of them, the most basic and important meaning was not being a slave. Which is to say, not being subject to the arbitrary will of someone else. This is probably the most universal meaning in all times and places. And in the more recent history of the West, especially in the United States, where colonists had the unusual opportunity of initiating a government from scratch, freedom meant not being subject to the arbitrary will of government. Although you have to say, They didn't mind owning slaves. They just didn't want to be one. Looking back, it is clear that the early Christian ideal of freedom differed radically from the pagan one. And freedom in the Renaissance, in turn, meant release from the supposed darkness of religion and a return to the humanism of the classical past. By the 18th century, freedom meant living by the light of reason, And then, in the Romantic period that followed this, from the mid-18th century to about 1830, people increasingly revolted against cold and restrictive reason, and popular poets like Williams Wordsworth began to define poetic insight as, I'm quoting him now, emotion recollected in tranquility. And he hailed this as a new age of freedom, of natural feeling and self-expression that we are still experiencing today. Some people today call our age a neo-romantic age for that reason. By the middle of the 19th century, classical liberals, as distinct from their modern liberal brethren, who are outright statists, were extending the romantic emphasis on personal freedom deep into political life, now defining freedom as a radical individualism, freedom from all unwanted moral authority and especially from the non-essential authority of the state. And finally, after a period of building welfare state democracies in the West to ensure adequate care of the emerging classes of the poor and the needy, our most recent ideal of freedom is a rather paradoxical one. We want a radical combination of personal rights and freedoms, but also a broad range of goods and services 
which we expect to be provided to all by the state. I have described this historically novel combination of enemy opposites in my various books and in my last podcast as libertarian socialism, a regime type under which citizens have all the personal, bodily, and especially sexual freedoms imaginable, while their former political, economic, social, and expressive freedoms are increasingly either eliminated altogether or heavily regulated by the state, its courts, and tribunals. At any rate, the foregoing suggests that the definition of freedom is not a simple one, and that a better approach might be to try a working classification of the different kinds of freedom, which is what I have tried to do. To my mind, there are at least six of these, as I will explain. And I should mention here that if my own website is any indication, people everywhere seem very interested in the question of what freedom really is. Of all the essays posted on this site and all the blogs over the years, and there are many, my essay called Six Kinds of Freedom, which you can find on this website, is by far the most downloaded. But first, there's an all-important distinction I need to make between the terms freedom and liberty, as these two are often used interchangeably. The distinction that seems to make sense these days is that the word liberty is mostly used to refer to freedom in its physical context and not to other kinds of freedom. A man in jail, for example, has almost zero liberty, but retains all his freedom in the sense that he has not lost the ability to choose among myriad opinions, attitudes, and values. After all, he can sleep or not. He can count the miles while pacing the floor or write poetry. He can also decide to lie to the warden, to pr protect a fellow criminal, or to tell the truth. In this respect, he's totally free, but has no liberty. Most people, it seems, busily use their freedom to restrict their liberty in all sorts of ways. For example, selling oneself into slavery for a few years for money or to settle a debt used to be common in the ancient world. Sometimes whole towns sold themselves as slaves to a neighboring city in exchange for their military protection. And there have always been people who have chosen to become hermits or monks voluntarily restricting their liberty <clears throat> in the hope of finding spiritual freedom. Less dramatically, most of modern life for everyone is freely spent getting tangled up in all sorts of ways that reduce liberty. Mortgages, bank loans, contracts, leases, business deals, and family and personal promises and obligations are mostly how we use our freedom to restrict our own liberty. Indeed, a bit of reflection will reveal that most human beings, most of the time, build a lockstep kind of life for themselves and then complain they would like to be more free. With this distinction, hopefully clarified at any rate, let us consider the six different kinds of freedom. The first of these I call freedom of mind. It's the most basic time of freedom and is embodied by the chap in jail. He has all his freedom of mind, but no liberty. All normal human beings are born and remain free 
in the most important sense that they are forever and at every conscious moment freely choosing beings, and every life is a delicate tapestry of millions of such personal choices, for better or worse. We simply cannot escape this kind of freedom, even if we try, for we must then freely choose among means of escape, and so on. From this perspective, we are indeed condemned to be free, for even choosing not to choose is a choice. Freedom of mind is of the greatest personal intimacy and secretiveness. It lies at the core of our being and is unknowable by others. It also distinguishes us, as far as we know, from the animal kingdom and from each other and is the basis on which we are able to become moral persons. That is why some people call this moral freedom. But it is not in itself moral. Rather, it is the unique capacity we have to become moral, or immoral, or amoral, according to how, in using our freedom of mind, we construct our worldview. The second time of freedom I call freedom of self. Now most of the world's freedom talk at least as found in the great religions and philosophical movements, has had to do with freedom from ourselves in the sense of learning how to escape the ever-present danger of becoming enslaved to our own bodily passions or victims of our own ignorance. For the ancients, such as the Stoic philosophers, self-freedom had to do with the practice of self-control, restraint, and balance to achieve the admired master-slave relationship of the soul over the body that they were certain is essential for the good life. In modern times, however, this ideal has largely been turned upside down with expression of the strong feeling of our, quote, true self, unquote, elevated to the role of master. The goal of this kind of freedom is therefore often expressed as the need I'm quoting again, to find myself, unquote, where the self is conceived as a kind of surrogate soul. Although no one uh, ever seems to ask how we would know whether the self-seeking or the self being sought is the true self. At any rate, this inversion of the traditional relation of mind over feeling has, according to many, produced what our forebears would have called a disorder of the soul, because it means we have become slaves to our own feelings. But whatever the outcome of this enduring master-slave duality, few moderns ever escape a lifelong dialogue with themselves over this kind of freedom. The third kind of freedom I call external freedom. It is sometimes called freedom from something or other by others. This refers to the normal and common freedoms expected in daily life in the West and in most countries throughout history. For all human beings tend to resist oppression, slavery, and suffocating authority imposed on them by others. For this reason, it is sometimes described, as I say, as freedom from, because it implies immunity from undue authority, especially, as mentioned previously, the authority of arbitrary government. Some people call this negative freedom, and we can think of it as meaning the freedom to do anything whatsoever you may want to do that is not forbidden by the law. So there's the negativity. It's 
any, you can do anything that's not forbidden by the laws. This, it must be noted, is in stark contrast to any totalitarian system that allows you to do only what is permitted by the laws, not to do anything that's not forbidden. You see, it's a subtle distinction. Many in the Western tradition consider this, in combination with political freedom, to be explained next, to be the most important kind of freedom. And the citizens of the Western world had plenty of this kind of freedom, especially in ye old England, long before democracy ever came along. And classical liberal constitutionalism was its political expression. I have a charming friend, a distinguished professor of British history, who tells me that in many respects, the English were far more free, less regulated, and less taxed in the 18th century or thereabouts than they are today. At any rate, this original form of liberalism is still much praised by such as isolated university professors, even though over the past century it has mutated into, well, it first mutated into equality liberalism, and then since World War II, which is a good sort of dividing point, it mutated into the libertarian socialism we have today. The next kind of freedom I call political freedom. And this is some kind, some, sometimes called freedom to, like in freedom to do things. Just try to imagine a world in which you are ruled by a tyrant who lets you do what you want on Monday, but not on Tuesday, and so on. Unpredictably, you would likely conclude that whatever your external freedoms may be, they are too unpredictable to be of any use. Political freedom has to do with establishing certain predictable and actionable rights, as we call them, whether we act upon them or not, and the limits to government power that enable the practice of those rights. The most common political freedoms are the qualified right to speak freely, but you can't yell fire in a crowd or slander or libel other people, and so on. To associate with people of your choice, to own property and to buy and sell it freely, to worship, to leave and re-enter your country freely, to be tried by a jury of your peers, to vote in elections if you live in a democracy, and so on. When these rights exist, we can say we have freedom to do these things, though to, to speak truthfully, we are only free to do them if they are permitted. That is, if we can do them without getting fined or jailed or killed, and so on. These comprise the normal rights associated with a free society, which may or, may or may not be a democratic one. For example, ancient Athens had many of these freedoms for male citizens, but not for slaves, or for women, or for foreigners. England had all these rights fully two centuries before she became democratic, as I already mentioned. The former Soviet Union promised all of these things to its citizens on paper, but did not allow them all in practice, because the main sense of freedom expected there was what I call collective freedom. This, this is the fifth type of freedom. Uh, as I say, I call it collective, or some people who like it call it higher freedom, or freedom for. Now, many commentators on freedom take the view that the external and political freedoms I have described 
are just formal concepts that mean nothing to the poor and the disadvantaged. And for the rest, they often amount to a recipe for a chaotic liberal society, an uncivil nightmare of clashing wills in political assemblies of the people, and under capitalism, of disconnected citizens chasing bucks to see who can die with the most toys. So what is really needed, they argue passionately, is a higher freedom, based on a unified collective will of the people to achieve a truly common good. As I say, this is sometimes called freedom for, because it is based on an ideology of collective unity that prescribes distinct social and moral values and objectives for all. For example, under this ideal, the state alone is allowed to control the production and supply of many basic citizen goods and services, thus giving citizens freedom from want, in exchange, by the way, for most of their income being taxed away. Believers in this sort of collective freedom continue to argue, and this is really important here, I think, they continue argue, to argue that the classical liberal idea of protecting citizens from their own government is simply not logical if the government is the embody, embodiment of their will in the first place. This type of collective freedom got its first modern formulation in Rousseau's social contract book, and it was put into practice in the disastrous totalitarian experiments of the past two centuries. First, in the French Revolution, where we saw people like Robespierre go to the guillotine clutching clutching Rousseau's social contract to his breast. And then it was put into practice in the communist, Nazi, and fascist regimes of Europe. It is the deadly enemy of the sort of individual political freedom found under liberal constitutionalism. But if you take a look at such books as my own book called The Trouble with Democracy, especially near the back of the book, the end of the book, you'll find chapters on something that sounds weird now, like Hitler's true democracy and Marx's true democracy, because these people actually drew from the democratic tradi tradition that was blessed by Jean-Jacques Rousseau in his social contract and saw themselves as providing their citizens with a higher form of democratic freedom than it is possible under liberal democracy. The sixth kind of freedom I call spiritual freedom. In its purest form, this type of freedom comes from striving for an escape from confusion and contradiction through a complete identification with the person of God or with God's will or perhaps with all creation. To arrive at a condition of soul that transcends the confusion and disharmony of the physical self and of the material world. This kind of spiritual yearning has been expressed by mystics from all religious traditions and also by many with no particular religious affiliation. Nature worshippers, such as we see so often today, for example. The key concept here is that only obedience to the unquestioned guidance of an ultimate power can produce true freedom. When taken to an extreme, some seekers after this kind of freedom, and I'm thinking now of the many kinds of Gnosticism, both ancient and modern in the Western tradition, have taken a number of opposing routes. Some of them engage in a kind of libertinism of the flesh, 
on the ground that because the material body is contemptible and of no importance whatsoever, it may be used, abused, and enjoyed until spent. Others take the ascetic route, denying bodily pleasures altogether on the ground that it is our worldly desires and our insatiable bodily longings that prevent the achievement of a complete spiritual freedom. So now that we have seen the most common definitions of freedom, why not take a look at some of the differences between the modern liberal and the conservative with respect to this word. Now you can find a lot of what I'm uh, speaking about today in my book, The Great Divide, in the chapter on freedom, if you go there uh, to take a look. Surely the most basic difference is that the modern liberal argues that liberty and equality can be promoted together by government to produce fraternity, as the French revolutionary slogan went. But the conservative wholly disagrees. Equality in the eyes of God and of justice has always been true, or ought to be. But when people are left alone to develop in life as, as they wish, and as they are able, there's no equality to be found. Beyond our common human nature, there are mostly differences. If we are talking about equal justice, there's no dispute. But there can be no inherent right, as radical egalitarians and communists like to claim, to an equal, individu uh, equal dividend rather, for some taken from the efforts and merits of others. For all free human beings will be different, and the different cards in a pack cannot be made the same just by shuffling them repeatedly. Another key liberal versus conservative difference is between abstract and concrete freedom. The liberal tends to praise freedom as an abstract concept, a natural and uni universal human right, as he would call it, applicable in all times and places. But the conservative, much as he loves freedom himself, disagrees with this idea. Freedoms of very particular, concrete and actionable kinds, such as the medieval English-derived guarantee against unlawful detention or imprisonment, which we call the act of habeas corpus, which is still on the books today, are concrete achievements of particular and often heroic citizens in particular civilizations, embodied in law, each in its own way. So for the conservative, there's no such thing as freedom in the abstract. There are only concrete, actionable freedoms. That is to say, freedoms that can be enforced on the basis of legal precedent. Uh, when I say enforced, I mean protected. There's no freedom of humanity, in other words, but there are real English, French, Polish freedoms, and so on. When pushed, the conservative would also likely say that freedom is not natural at all, that a people has to be ready for a regime of freedom, ready in the sense of <clears throat> already enjoying the habits of self-control, discipline, civility, honesty, and trust that will make a home for freedom instead of a hellhole. Nations and peoples follow the same pattern as children, they must grow into the capacity to deal with freedom. In short, freedom necessitates responsibility and control, else it cannot survive. And the possibility for, for any person or society to become or remain free has to do with the ratio of inner versus outer control at work. In one of his many great quotations, 
Edmund Burke warned, quote, that society cannot exist unless a controlling power upon will and appetite be placed somewhere, and the less of it there is within, the more there must be without. It is ordained in the eternal constitution of things that men of intemperate minds cannot be free. Their passions form their fetters, unquote. And before him, and I think actually Burke drew quite a bit from him, the philosopher David Hume warned, quote, that reason is the slave of the passions. That's entirely the flip of what we like to think today. But Hume's view was that people, that reason is a kind of instrument and people will use it to justify their own passions. One of the scary aspects of this, by the way, and I often say it, and people sort of look and they either nod or they don't, I say, human beings can normalize anything. And I believe it's true. And they have normalized just about anything and everything. That's why when Hume says reason is a slave of the passions, what he's saying is watch out. First look at what they're trying to normalize and then watch out for how, to, how they try to reason their way into it because they, they may be reasoning harm to you. In this respect, at least, history informs us pretty bluntly that only very small portions of humanity have ever been free in the original or liberal sense of that term, and that most human beings crave security far more than they crave freedom. The perverse genius of our contemporary libertarian socialist regimes, neither truly libertarian nor truly socialist, but a kind of bastard synthesis of the two, is that they give people the freedom they crave most, which is their own bodily and sexual freedoms, while at the same time holding them in a kind of faux-democratic tax and regulatory servility with respect to so many forms of freedom they once considered sacrosanct. Name one, you say? Sure, that's easy. The citizens of all the modern democracies have in a mere half-century suffered the virtual elimination, well, almost the virtual elimination, of their ancient right to speak their minds in public freely, subject only to the normal and ancient bar of libel and slander. We see evidence of this all around us. Look at Professor Jordan Peterson today when he basically spoke up and said he would not be forced to accept the gender dictates of the liberals around him and all the trouble he got into for that. In the very recent past, we pitied people in the totalitarian nations such as the USSR, North Korea, Cuba, and communist Eastern Europe. We called them brainwashed. But now we call it political correctness as applied to ourselves and as visible in our own midst. Our punishments are softer, but the mindset and the fear of censure in our own regimes is the same. The most powerful and telling insight given to us by Burke and that really put the idea of abstract freedom as a supposedly unqualified good into perspective, bears repeating. He said, quote, Liberty, when men act in bodies, by which he meant in groups, is power. So liberty, when men act in bodies, is power, unquote. So, in other words, what he was saying was, Watch out when people quote liberty as a justification for their behavior because they may have you in their gun sights. So even though a long-time freedom lover like so many, I have not been able to think of freedom in the same way since reading Burke's statement. He was basically warning 
that freedom is never innocent, that groups of people can easily combine for or against anything in the name of freedom. That is possible because, except for very obvious conditions of outright oppression or slavery, freedom is a neutral concept that is not naturally attached to any particular value. In other words, to hold the word freedom sacred without any qualification is tantamount to intellectual and moral laziness. That is the reason for the traditional conservative fear of the freedom-democracy linkage, one that can so easily and has so often been turned against the good, against minorities, and even against concrete freedom itself. There were lots of examples of this in ancient times, the most memorable being a democratic vote of ancient Greek citizens of Athens to end democracy itself. That's ironic. Two examples of how democracy conceived as freedom can backfire in very recent times are the free election of the terrorist Hamas organization in Palestine and of the fanatical Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, which soon afterwards had fallen into a military coup in a story that is far from finished. A charming example of freedom thriving under autocratic rule is described by the late philosophy of Professor William Stace of Princeton University, who worked as a student in what used to be called the British Colony of Ceylon. The British, he noted, were never under the illusion, as were and are still the French today, that politics is a science, having known it for centuries to be something much closer to a very high art. Accordingly, above the door to the office that Stace was working in, which was the colonial office of administration, there was a big sign that read, there's no reason for it, it's just our policy. (laughs) Many who had gone there to complain simply chuckled and went back home. Stace remarked with admiration that the British gave their subject people no political freedom at all, but all the civil and economic freedoms that anyone could ever want, of thought, speech, assembly, work, the press, religion, and even the right to harshly criticize their own British governors. He concluded that the citizens of Ceylon in the very early 20th century had less to fear from speaking their minds, I'm quoting him, had less to fear from speaking their minds under that autocratic government than is the case in the democratic United States of today, unquote. And he wrote that, in 1936. Hard to believe. A further and key liberal versus conservative difference is the distinction between individual freedom and social freedom. For the liberal, what matters most is individual freedom. If all individuals are maximally free, civil society, they believe, will be maximally free, and this is their operative equation. What the conservative seeks, however, is not raw individual freedom so much, although he's not unconscious as to its virtues. Uh, But he doesn't want it to become what he calls doctrinaire selfishness. He wants the freedom of all, but in the context of a viable and and effective, quote, social freedom, unquote, that enables civil society to carry out its social and moral functions of teaching, restraining, and permitting certain kinds of behaviors and not others. The social and moral authority of a voluntary civil society, and remember, we are talking here about the exertion of authority and not about the imposition of state power, whether it's parental authority, 
moral shaming, <clears throat> religious sanction or praise, leadership and direction from our superiors, and so on, is what constitutes the social and moral binding power of society. And it must often exert priority over individual freedom with which it will and ought to come into conflict. The true conservative laments that the social freedom functions of civil society have been dissolving rapidly in modern times because they are dissolved from above by the egalitarian action of governments jealous of citizen loyalty to their own civil societies. And from below, through attacks from persons and groups in the name of individual freedom and rights. Finally, and not least, the conservative, conservative rejects the modern liberal, especially the romantic liberal, notion of natural freedom as something that has been enjoyed in the state of nature <clears throat> in the absence of restraining law. For the conservative, it is only the restraint of custom and tradition, but especially of law, that makes freedom viable in the first place. In other words, the venerable maxim, liberty under law, must be the guide, and not simply unqualified liberty in itself. For, as I hope I have made clear, there is really no such thing. For the conservative, in other words, it's order that guarantees freedom. If you want to test your own conception of freedom, go to my book, The Great Divide, where you will find a table contrasting these liberal and conservative views of freedom that I have been describing. So that's it uh, for today. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at William Gardner and check out the essays, books, and blogs on this website. And thanks for listening.